0: In this episode of Trek in time, we're going to talk about the mirror universe taking a turn that I'll be honest, I did not see coming. <laughs> That's right. We're talking about discovery season one, episode 12 vaulting Ambi- ambition. Let me say that again. That's right. We're talking about discovery season one, episode 12 vaulting ambition. Welcome everybody to Trek in time, where we're watching every episode of star Trek in chronological order. We're also taking a look at the world at the time of original broadcast. So as I mentioned before, we're at the end of season one of discovery, we've only got a handful of episodes left. It felt like it took us literally years to get through enterprise and suddenly blink, we're almost done with the first season of discovery. Yeah, We are also talking about the world during the first part of 2018. It's not that long ago, but it feels like it could have been a lifetime ago because oh boy, (laughs) has it been a busy couple of years. (laughs) And who are we? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids, including the most recently released The Sinister Secrets of Singe, the robot and smuggler-filled middle-grade adventure series that I hope people will be interested in checking out. With me, of course, is my brother, Matt. He's the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at merging tech and its impact in our lives. So we have the storytelling, we have the sci-fi
1: tech, which means we've got Star Trek. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's a good. July 4th weekend. Trying to have a relaxing kind of long weekend to take a, take a breath and enjoy life mm-hmm. a little bit. How, how's it going for you? I'm doing all right. It's good to hear that you're,
0: you're trying to have a long weekend when your employer is you. Me, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm kind of giving myself the weekend off. <laughs> That's nice. That's the way it should be. Yeah. What we usually like to do before we have our discussion about the most recent episode is revisit some of the comments from previous ones. So Matt, what did you find in the comments for us this
1: week? Well, there's a, f- a couple of fun ones. One, we're starting to put out some YouTube shorts from clips from our show. And so- there was a comment from one of the shorts. I'm going to have to paraphrase this because there's a- some harsh language. <laughs> <laughs> I effing love discovery. I know I'm in the minority, but I think it's the best of the new Trek. I'll die on this hill. That's from John Vance. <laughs> I just love the fact that he's willing to die on the hill. Yeah. That he loves this show. Uh,
0: John, I, I thank you for the comment. And I will say this when discovery first came out, I was super excited about yeah. star Trek being back on television. That to me was the most important aspect of it. Then the show was aired and I was watching it and I was still very happy that star Trek was back on television. It felt important, but there were elements of it that I didn't like quite as much. Yeah. On the rewatch. And I know Matt and I have talked about this previously on the rewatch. I am appreciating this show a lot more than I did the first time through. So John, I'm not going to necessarily die on that hill with you, but I will say (laughs) it is a battle (laughs) worth fighting. There are elements of this show that I think are actually really, really great and unique (laughs) to this series. I like that. You're basically saying you
1: go, John,
2: run up that hill, John.
0: (laughs) I'm right behind you. (laughs) I agree with you. Some things. Yeah, but John, you're not wrong. You're not definitely like this show. I think there are lots of things about this show that are worth, worth uh, enjoying.
1: Another one from regular commenter pale ghost 69. I finally see what the directors were going for with Burnham. She's literally designed for this episode. In fact, I'd wager the story would be better if Burnham was the one stuck in the wrong universe instead of Lorca. <laughs> also, I called it on the rogue ship fighting an evil empire, LOL. So I, on the rewatch talking about the rewatch, there is so much more depth to the, all these characters and to Burnham than I, I got on the first watch. Yeah. It's like, there is so much great stuff being done with her and some of the other characters that it's a shame that they created a show We've said this before. That's better on a rewatch than it is the first time through. And the last comment I want to bring up is from technophile. What else have they missed in the mirror universe? Perhaps I'm trying too hard to make sense of a fictional program. Thinking through the logic of historical changes, it seems like they were a bit too selective about what they took from enterprise. For example, why does mirror vogue look the same? Mirror Vulcans didn't have beards in the first contact, right? Feels like there was a missed opportunity to make some changes based on the Klingon augment virus never happening. They could have had some fun with it, with the the mirror universe, but they kept yeah. it they kept it like exactly the same, just people in different places.
0: Yeah, there are certain aspects of it that just simply boil down to it's a TV show. Yeah. And that's one of them. It's um, you know, the the first contact lack of beards that is an interesting thing to point out the reason (laughs) there are no beards in is because it's literally repurposing from a film so they didn't shoot new stuff to show first contact with the mirror Vulcans. but your point does make sense and i do appreciate the comment because it does create an opportunity to think about some of the And we'll talk about this in this discussion. I think a lot of mirror universe depictions, the original series, of course, introduced the mirror universe and the point of it was not to explore the mirror universe. It was to explore the characters and what the mirror characters were like. And then it became more and more as the mirror universe was used again and again, and it was used in multiple series throughout all of Trek. And every time it was done, it became more and more about the universe, less about the characters. Mm -hmm. I think that that was most abundantly clear in enterprise where we literally had a standalone as if it was totally disconnected from the series mirror universe. Episode. So it's, and the depiction there versus the depiction here, Matt and I talked about that episode. I really didn't like the way people were directed. I didn't like the way Bacula had to swagger around. Like he had some pool balls in his pants. He didn't look like he was walking normally. It was just everything about that looked like a bunch of people being told to play act. And if I remember correctly, Jolene blaylock said of that episode, she thought it was ridiculous. She, mm-hmm. she There was no point to it. And it really felt like a bottle episode for no other point. And this depiction of what the mirror universe is about is going back for me is going back more about to the relationships of the characters to each other. Yep. And especially with the twist that is revealed in this episode, it's already been dropped in the comments, so we can get right into it. But before we do that, that noise in the background is of course the read alert, which means it's time for Matt to buckle up, oh, strap himself in, put on his crash element and read the Wikipedia
1: description. Burnham and Lorca are summoned to the ISS Charon the Imperial flagship. Georgiou sends Lorca to a torturous agony booth and has dinner with Burnham. (laughs) That's a hysterical sentence to me. Yes, it is. Stamets finds himself within the mycelial network with the consciousness of his mirror counterpart, learning that the network has been corrupted by the mirror Stamets experiments. Stamets encounters a representation of Culber and accepts his loss before waking up from his trance. He discovers that his spore collection Has been infected. Jojo laments allowing Lorca to become a father figure to Burnham only for the pair to fall in love and plot to overthrow her. She plans to execute Burnham, who reveals the truth about being from another universe. Explaining how they had crossed over, Jojo trades the Spore Drive schematics for information on alternative ways to cross between universes, which leads Burnham to realize that, that the Lorca she knows is actually originally from the mirror universe and has been manipulating events to get back to the mirror universe while also getting close to her Lorca escapes from the agony booth. (laughs) (laughs) What a great, what a great ending to that description. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. And I know what my favorite part of this Wikipedia description is. What's your favorite part? I think it's the
1: Lorca escapes from the agony booth. (laughs) at the end. But what is it for you? For me, Tyler Vogue Doesn't even mention him. Does not mention him.
0: <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> Apparently the B plot was just to B. <laughs> vaulting <laughs> ambition directed by Hanal Culpepper, who is from her own website described as an energetic and unflappable director. Annell's credits range from superhero action adventures to thrillers and genre films to character driven genres. She is, and I think this is fantastic. She is the director who piloted the Star Trek Picard premiere, making her the first woman to launch a new Star Trek series in its 53 year history. In 2021, she won an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Directing for her work on the episode. In 2022, she was nominated again for her work on Netflix's True Story, starring Kevin Hart and Wesley Snipes. Currently, she is directing and executive producing Neil Gaiman's Amazon series, Anansi Boys. And the episode was written by Jordan Ardino, who is known for Star Trek Discovery, Glamorous, and Quantico, among other projects, lots of television credits on his IMDb page. This episode dropped on January 21st, 2018 and stars as usual, Saniqua Martin green, Doug Jones, Shazad Latif, Anthony Rapp, Mary Weissman, and Jason Isaacs. And at the time of original broadcast, January 21st, 2018, Matt, you were finally putting Rockstar behind you. You were moving on from that. And there were 38 million streams of this song of which if I remember correctly, you were responsible for about 37 million of them. It was of course finesse by Bruno Mars, featuring Cardi B the movies. We were all lining up for the third week in a row to see Jumanji welcome to the jungle. It stays at number one for the third week after making another 19 million. The fact that it earns the number one slot for a third week with only 19 million gives you a sense of what kind of movie month january typically is and on television we've already talked in previous weeks about shows like friends and gray's anatomy being the number one and number two most watched programs the number three most watched program in 2018 13 reasons why on netflix and from the news on this day january 21st 2018 there was a government shutdown currently going on, which was shutting down everything that was federally controlled. So there'd be national parks, monuments, various services to veterans, uh, homeless, etc. Bitter bickering muddies the path to ending the government shutdown. An article by Thomas Kaplan and Cheryl Gay Stolberg which examined how with the government shutdown and the two parties faulting each other, senators from both parties were looking for an agreement to end the crisis, how corruption and cronyism in banking fueled Iranian protests. Thousands lost their savings in the collapse of shady banks, part of a broader economic system plagued by insider dealing, mismanagement, and inefficiency. This, of course, is not just an issue in Iran. It is a global issue. And has impacted countries like Lebanon most recently. There was also a story about Congressman combating harassment, settled his own misconduct case. In a story by Katie Rogers and Kenneth Vogel, the story was about Representative Patrick Meehan, a Republican member of the House Ethics Committee who used taxpayer money to pay a former aide who had seen him as a father figure before he made unwanted advances on the younger man. On to our discussion of today's episode breaking things down into just bullet points instead Mm -hmm. of trying to wind our way through what is a very twisty turny episode. There's a lot going on in this one. So I'm suggesting we start with the biggest piece of the puzzle. (laughs)
2: Lorca.
0: Let's talk about the Lorca of it all. This episode ends with a realization by Burnham clicking things into place of, wait a minute, he has said, things like this, 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 and this, the goal is this, 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 and this. And the fact that she discovers in this reality, that the powers that be in the mirror universe are aware of the main universe, Mm -hmm. they understand that it exists because they have ripped technology from the defiant, which happened originally, the defiant disappeared in the original series it was tied into enterprise brilliantly, I think in the episode where the defiant is pulled into the mirror universe, Mm -hmm. but it's also incorporates some time travel because it pulls it back into the past of the mirror universe. And now here we have Burnham realize everybody here knows about the parallel universes and understands exactly where Burnham and her ship is from. And it's these elements when she puts them all together that makes her realize the Lorca that she has thought is her universe's Lorca is in fact the Lorca from the mirror universe. I remember what I thought when this revelation was
1: made the first time watching it. What was it like for you? It, at this point, they had dropped enough hints, like the episode before and the one before that, that I had a sense that he was not who he says he is, what that actually meant. I didn't know. So it was still a very surprising moment for me, but I, it's like, I, I, had a sense that something like this was about to drop by the time they did it, um, because they had dropped enough clues. So it didn't catch me completely off guard. Did it catch you completely off guard? The first time
0: watching this, I missed the most critical element, I think, which is before at the end of the Klingon war, when they're using the Discovery's jump drive to do 130 plus quick jumps around the Klingon ship and then they go on one last jump and Lorca clearly on my three watch. I saw it. He clearly is screwing around with the navigation. I missed that. It was too subtle for me in that moment. So that being missed for me, Lorca maintained a sense of like, he's playing a lot of things close to the vest. And I thought he was more trying to I got the sense that what he was trying to do was more control his ability to stay captain of the discovery because he foresaw losing that because of the Admiral who Admiral Cornwell, who had said, I'm gonna remove you from this. She's now been rescued. And I saw this all as him trying desperately to do something to maintain his captaincy more than anything else
1: that's what I, I had taken the first watch. I had thought the same exact thing, but the, the last like episode and the one before that with the coordinate change he made and some of the comments he had made, it was clear to me, my first watching through that he was up to something to get them to the mirror universe, Mm. but I didn't think, oh, he's from the mirror universe. Like, so that part really surprised me, but it was like, he had a motivation to get there. And I just didn't know what that was until this reveal happened. So I was just as surprised, just surprised in a different way. So it's kind of like, oh, oh, he's from here. Okay. That makes a lot of sense.
0: It's fascinating too, because it is such a huge reveal without him being the prime player in the episode, other than a scene where he is being tortured for very specific reasons by the captain of the Caron, who is basically taking out his anger at the fact that Lorca in the past and, and really kind of a grimy character study in this one Giorgio reveals that Lorca had a history of grooming younger women. And Mm -hmm. it is really kind of a gross reveal that strangely meshes perfectly with the Lorca we've seen throughout the series. He has this eye on Burnham. And one of the things that Burnham flashes back to when she's thinking about him is the fact that he says, I chose you, but not for the reasons you think it's this kind of smarminess to his entire, his captaincy always seemed a little bit instinctive and swaggery as opposed to Mm -hmm. meticulous. And while being meticulous, while being very demanding as a captain, I think that one of the things that this episode does really well and what the show does really well, is it kind of undercuts the original series presentation of what the mirror universe would work like the original series presents a mirror universe in which humans, the, the, the brilliance of a captain Kirk turns into a megalomaniac in the mirror universe. That episode leaves you with the question or mark of how could humanity operate at any kind of high technical level yeah. if you had that kind of chaos erupting from every individual in the mirror universe. It really kind of leaves you with a question mark this episode and the entire series of discovery based upon this episode, I think does a fantastic job of reaffirming how you could have some order in the mirror universe, despite the fact that humanity is driven by such megalomaniac drives because Lorca undercuts. The statement by Spock at the end of the original series, where in that episode, Spock says it is easier for a civilized man to behave like a savage than it is for a savage to behave like a civilized man. Mm -hmm. Spock in that moment is saying like somebody from the Mary universe can't hide who they are here. Lorca is a demonstration that that is not true. Lorca in this way, in this sense, in this moment is a brilliant captain. Because for the entirety of this series up to this point, he has been able to convince everybody in the Federation running on his swagger and his instinct to be able to dodge accusations, to dodge, dodge confusion. When you find this twist in this episode, it reframes the conversation he has with Cornwell in which she says, I've been thinking about our earlier lives together. And he gets this look on his face that he's just like, She better not ask me about a specific. And she says, you don't remember. And he says, well, I'm just thinking about how young we were. He manages to dodge the issues. He's been able to do this obviously time and time again and perform really well while also (laughs) outside. He can't stay inside the lines, but I think that it really does demonstrate that the mirror universe's reality from the original series could work. If there are individuals like Alorca or like Giorgio who are able to, with enough time and power, hold things together, because it really is ultimately relying on the strong person theory of history. Strong enough elements within the mirror universe can yeah. keep chaos from overwhelming
1: everything. Well, I was going to say that this ties in way too well into the, I mean, this was 2018 when this was made public, what was happening in the world around that time, it's like, it is coming through this so clear because the whole strongman persona is all based on lying, cheating, stealing and manipulating. Yes. The, the master, the person who can just lie and twist things and make it, and then basically gaslight you when you try to catch them in the lie and they can just twist right back out of it again. And they just keep lying and twisting and manipulating to the point where there's so much confusion around what's going on that you kind of lose sight of the fact that they're manipulating you. Yes. Lorca is the epitome of that. He's teaching a masterclass in it.
0: Yeah. To take what you're saying to the next, like most like pull back the curtains and really look at it for what it was. They fictionalized what us political life was in 2018. They, they, there was an element to the emergence of Trump as president of the United States that didn't feel like through the looking glass for a huge portion of the United States. And this was a moment where they fictionalized it in a brilliant way of to say, how can somebody with personality traits that do not feel geared for leadership trust, like how does somebody like that operate in the world that we know? And then they fictionalized it beautifully with a character who is apparently a groomer Mm -hmm. a abusive manipulative man who has a history of leaving people in his wake the torture scene with the captain of the Charon is effectively like they do not say specifically what happened to that
1: man's sister but she's probably dead she's dead they don't they don't yeah. have to. The fact that he says, "Say her name, say, say her, her name. name," and he it never is, does. Yeah. And the last thing he does is he basically kills the captain and then says her name. It was he just kills like, the captain, and as the captain is
0: dying, says her name and says, and as and I really did like her, but as usually happens, something better came along. That something better, reading between the lines for me, is Burnham. Yeah, the the Burnham from the the Mirror Universe, and the plans that were hatched between him and burnham to overthrow giorgio are is the pin that giorgio is holding onto in her anger toward burnham which the main universe burnham does not know about so she walks into the the meal where she has to eat the Kelvian ganglia the whole horror of that scene i thought was brilliantly under understated it was, under, under <laughs> yeah. it was uh, the the presentation of, of Burnham to the emperor and the emperor is very kind, like pick one and she picks a Kelvin out of three. And then only later are we seeing the Kelvin being served with her offering part of the brainstem to Burnham. Like the well, nightmarish moment for that, the, the fact that she eats it, the fact that she chokes it down. It's yeah. the, there's a lot of, it's a horror movie in effect. It's it, you don't know when the shoe is going to drop, but the shoe does drop because George, says you are going to overthrow the way you and Lorca were working against me. And I know this. So how dare you come back here and pretend that we can return to anything looking yep. like normal.
1: Do we want to pivot and talk about Georgeu Cause we're talking about it right now. I because, think we do because I don't know. I, I just eat up everything Michelle Yeoh does. And I, yeah, <laughs> It looks to me like she's having a blast. Yeah playing a horrible person. She looks like she's having such, so much fun playing this horrible, horrible human being. And it's delicious. Watching her on the show. It's just absolutely fantastic. She does a great job of portraying strength, leadership, and the fact that there's so much fear in the people around her. Mm -hmm. And with just a subtle look, you can tell that she's like terrifying everybody. It's like her performance in this is so perfect. And in that scene, when she's, I don't know if you caught it when, when, uh, Burnham's eating the ganglia and she's mm. literally choking it down. looks like she wants to vomit. Yeah. It cuts to Jojo, and the look on Jojo's face is a f- complete pleasure. Cause she picks up on that Burnham did not want to be eating this yeah. and is choking it down. And she, I can't remember what she said, but she takes a big swig of whatever wine she's drinking. And it looks like Giorgio is just eating up the fact that she's making Burnham squirm. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's, it, it's so great. I just absolutely love her performance in this and not to get ahead of ourselves but her character is one of my favorite characters on the show. It's fantastic. And it, she's such, she's one of those, it's a like Gaius from Battlestar Galactica. One of these villains, these people that they're not good, but man, you just love it when they're on screen yeah. because they like steal the limelight. They're so, they're so you love hating them. <laughs> it's just, they're, they're lovable bad. There's characters. so much more,
0: yeah. there's so much more compelling storytelling to be told yeah. around the broken figure than there is the virtuous figure with, without a weakness, the virtuous figure who has no weakness, who has no chink in their armor is less interesting from us as a, as from a storytelling perspective, you want to see, even if the character doesn't realize it, you want to see redemption. You want to see them climb to a different level. I, Mm -hmm. in my own storytelling. This is, you know, a strange segue maybe for the listeners, but as I've mentioned before, I I write fiction. And one of my favorite elements of my new series is that I have antagonists in the first book. They are not villains. They are antagonists. There is a difference. The villain is the one who twirls the mustache and says I'm going to do this because I love being bad the antagonist is the one who says, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I have reasons for doing what I'm doing. And that is so much more compelling. Mm-hmm. And from a creator perspective, it's a lot more fun to create that because then that gives you the opportunity as I'm doing. in then future books with some of these antagonists from the first book, they, in some cases are going to become allies and the relationships will evolve because the enemy of my enemy is my friend and that's yep. what is happening here. Giorgio is presented in the main universe and looking back it is strange to say they introduced a captain in Giorgio in the first episode that you legitimately like. You pre- you're presented with her and Burnham as a pair. Clearly she's a mother figure for Burnham and you understand like I know why Burnham has an allegiance here. I like this captain. And then she's dead by the Mm -hmm. end of the first episode, she's gone. That's an audacious first step in storytelling for discovery for it to come back around by them introducing a character, which was probably a delight for Michelle Yao to play because playing the captain as she was presented in those first episodes. She is an extremely gracious, respectful, understanding, and empathetic person. And we are not given any sense of any kind of weakness. And over time that would have worn incredibly thin. Yeah. Here we're presented with the opposite of that. It is Machiavellian. She is conniving. She is very powerful and very quick to use that power brilliant scene where it's her and a room full of advisors.
1: Oh, and she kills and them. She all?
0: assassinates all of them because Burnham drops the news. There's a parallel universe. And that's where I'm from. Giorgio can't let Can- the parallel universe reality get out. She kills everybody, but one and says, I'll make you a governor of Andor if you clean up this mess and never say anything about this ever again. So okay. I love that scene.
1: Let me on that scene specifically, there's a couple of scenes that have happened in the mirror universe that are downright gory and graphic. And that's Mm -hmm. one scene where you see this thing going through everybody's head and blood and brain matter coming out the other side. It's it's disgusting. It's like, we've never seen this in star Trek. I actually really appreciated that they did this because this is the mirror universe. It's supposed to be horrific and they're making those torture chambers look finally look brutal, (laughs) absolutely brutal. And then the ganglia uh, like, we're eating our slaves. And then the, and then the whole through the head, it's like they're, they're setting this up as a horror show. It's like the mirror universe is terrifying and you should be very afraid of being here. So it's like, I, I, this is one of those times where I think the gore and the being graphic actually helps a lot because it sets the stage in a, this is an incredibly dangerous universe they're in The stakes are higher than you've ever seen. So it's like, it's, it's a great way to kind of set that stage. It was the same thing with the Klingons when they were showing the Klingon bodies, like all those bodies that were being like torn apart and eaten and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, wow, we've never seen something like this in star Trek. It helps to set the Klingons apart (laughs) in a way they've never been set apart before. It's like, these are vicious beings. So it's like. I really do appreciate that the show was pushing the boundaries a little bit of what Star yep. Trek has done in the past, because you kind of need that because it sets, it sets the stage for danger and you're, you're concerned about the characters then that you care about. You don't want to see them get hurt. But it's literally George, pushing George's coldness of the way she just flicks that thing and just like, yeah, catches it. And is like, okay, let's move on. We're gonna, I got a plan. You know, she's conniving something, but you don't yeah. know what she's conniving, what she's pulling together, but you can see that the strings are getting pulled which is great.
0: Yeah. It's two things occurred to me while you were talking, which was this is enterprise existed in the 21st century, but this is literally the push of star Trek into the 21st century. Enterprise was not enterprise was basically late 20th century storytelling. Yep. In the vein of Voyager and Next Generation DS9. Whereas this is a huge leap forward into what depictions will look like, the kinds of language that are used. There's some swearing in Star Trek and this. A lot of people push back against that. I I don't push back on that. I think there's an aspect to what is the new normal, what is the new, you know, like the main framing of storytelling and storytelling looks different now than it did in the year 2000 in the same way that it looked different than it did in the late sixties. So to say, Oh, this isn't star Trek. Well, by that measure, next generation is also not star Trek. Star Trek is only a show from the late sixties. The other thing that occurred to me was the power that Giorgio the emperor has in this episode, when (laughs) Burnham negotiates to give her the spore drive technology, it, Presents a level of terror to the entire galaxy. Yep, that is really remarkable because the Charon, as it's shown, is a planet-killing ship. The so star
1: it, it has
0: what looks like
1: <laughs> I love a that.
0: star as the power source. It's kind of harkening back to what is said about in the main universe it's revealed that romulan starships during the era of next generation are powered by effectively a artificial black hole that is what they are doing they have an, they have a drive that sustains its power from creating an artificial black hole this to me looks like that kind of level of of technology that is terrifying in its in its aspect and the idea that a gigantic ship like this would show up with a star at its heart but could also effectively just blink out of space and show up anywhere and rain the weaponry that it has down on any planet. This would effectively give Giorgio the control of the entire galaxy. So this is a level of, of terror as far as like, what does this mean? The deal that Burnham makes, I want to get back. You can share your information with me. I'll give you the spore drive technology. Is she legitimately willing to do that? At this point, we don't know if she's legitimately willing to keep that deal because I think there's got to be a part of running that's like, I can't do that to this galaxy. I can't right. do that to everybody here. That would be a nightmare. Yeah. So that all being said, we've talked now about the the parallel universe of it all, the the knowledge of the parallel universe of the main universe. We've talked about Giorgio. We've talked about Lorca. We haven't yet talked about Stamets and the Stamets experience here, which is... That sounds like a Broadway show buried. Yeah. The Stamets (laughs) experience, the, the and considering who you have playing Stamets and, uh, his, his husband, two Broadway actors. I mean, it could be a Broadway show. Um, here we have folded into, The very physical story of, and physical in a lot of different ways, Lorca being physically tortured, Burnham being in physical danger, the, the reality of like, what is going on in the parallel universe, as far as huge steps toward gaining power, manipulating through power and using that power in horrible ways. Stamets is on a metaphysical journey. And it is this incorporation of his mirror universe self. Who at first blush in this episode, they don't seem to be as far apart as like a Giorgio from a Giorgio. You have the two Giorgios at such extreme ends from each other as far as ethical and Machiavellian. Stamets, though, in both universes seems to have one core element I will do anything in pursuit of the truth. And so it has led both of them to the same moment. They've both found themselves inside the micellar network. We know that the main universe is Stamets ends up there because he has hooked himself up to become part of the spore drive. It isn't quite so clear what the other Stamets has done because there is no yeah. Spore drive in the merry universe, but that Stamets has done something through experimentation to effectively corrupt it, get himself trapped. And he is the cause. And I thought that this was a fantastic part of
1: this, like
0: planting of seeds throughout previous episodes. And then here we have the conclusion of it being the mirror universe. Stamets saying, I have been sending you these messages, these glimpses. Of my reality in attempts to get, connect with you because I needed your help. So it is this every time Stamets woke up and mistook telly for a captain and made references to the forest and all these sort of strange things that didn't make any sense were the result of the mirror universe. So one of the things that is being broadcast at this point, I think in a very clear subtext, is they are saying any use of the spore drive involves in the mirror universe getting closer and closer. It becomes part of the danger of the spore drive. And I think at this point, in my reading, like, the creators of the show knew that they were playing with something that would be a finite story of the sport drive. It didn't feel like they were doing something. They continue. were like, this yeah. is not going to be something that we're going to have to explain why we don't have sport drives in the future. This is very clearly the reason why the sport drive brings with it an incredible danger of being able to flip into an alternate universe into a parallel, into a parallel timeline. That's too much
1: that you can't, well, there's, can't there's also- control that. There's also a clear tie to like environmentalism here because it's like whatever is being whatever they're doing with the the mycelium network is harming it and it's it's corrupting it it's killing it and they make the statement of if the mycelium network dies everything else dies with it it's like this this could end everything if we're not careful so they're setting it up also from that point of view of humans clumsily, just doing things that satisfy our needs for the moment, not thinking about the big picture. And then we end up in a situation where it's like, oh crap, we just put ourselves into a bad situation that we might drive ourselves extinct. So it's kind of, it's an environmental message that's also coming through it as well. But it's being done in a very subtle, clever way, the way they're, they're talking about it, which I liked. Um, so it's very, it's very clear right from this episode, why we've never heard of the sport drive before and why we'll never hear of it again, because (laughs) it can't, it can't exist because it's so delicate that you can cause damage. It can merge parallel universes together. There's a lot of danger to it.
0: It is a much more compelling.
1: Yeah. And
0: longer story thread in the form of like, this is a thing and it exists for multiple episodes. And the danger is not abundantly clear, but once it becomes clear, it all makes sense. It is so much more compelling Then the only other episode I can think of that did something similar, which was a later episode of next generation, where it is revealed that warp engines are effectively stretching parts of space and there's a danger to it. And that felt like a clumsily put together, like environmental message that was just like, there's something important to pay attention to here. Thud. Because even when that episode first aired, that next generation episode, I remember saying to myself, like they've just introduced something as a drop in a specific episode that should have huge ramifications moving forward, but they would never talk about it ever again. This is the opposite of that. This is something where inherent to the very thing that is driving the ship, they have made it a part of the bigger storytelling so that when Mm -hmm. they say, "Uh uh-oh, this might not be something we can use. You understand why. Mm -hmm. So the vision that Stamets has, and I think that it's, I think there's a lot in there, which is depicted as almost a literal reality, but I take it as all very allegorical. And this is metaphysical. This is two consciousnesses coming together and kind of with the myceliar networks involvement in being the connection between them. Reality forms around the consciousnesses is my understanding of this because it is they're suddenly in the ship. They're in discovery. Stamets recognizes it. The parallel Stamets says, yes, the micellar network is helping you with this, but then there's the vision. They go to the engineering room and Stamets has the vision of his husband walking through a hallway and follows him. And it becomes a little bit like once again, an Alice in Wonderland chase. It is like the white rabbit running through the tunnel, stamets chasing after him. And when he finally catches up to him, it is in their apartment, which at first has this kind of horror movie, decrepit aspect to it, which then flips almost instantly and seamlessly into very placid daily life. They're brushing their teeth. And they're having conversations and it is an interesting moment when it is his husband saying, I'm dead. And you realize through the storytelling now that the Stamets who seemed to be so detached, the eyes are actually white. All of that was not a Stamets who was unaware of the reality around him. He was just inundated by multiple realities at that point, because my understanding, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, my understanding is. Stamets knows that his husband died. He knows his husband was murdered by Tyler uh-huh. because part of him was still conscious of what was going on around him. And that is now coming into his understanding through his consciousness, framing it with the myocelin network as this moment
1: to say goodbye. That's not how I took it because the language and the dialogue of what they were saying to each other was to me, I took it as this is the doctor's consciousness. He is, he is in the mycelial network. He, I can't remember what the actual phrasing he said. It was along the lines of, it's kind of like the mycelial network exists out of time and space. It, it's its own thing. Everything is there all at once and everything is not there all at once. And so he is there. That is his consciousness talking to his husband. It's not a, it's not Stamets mind putting him there to have that conversation. It actually is him there mm. talking to him. So I took it as it's basically the ghost of his partner having a conversation with him. So it's like, for me, the way I interpreted that whole scene was he's really here having this conversation. There's something beyond our understanding in the mycelial network that's making this possible, mm-hmm. that the connection between them is so strong. That's why he's there. I'm trying to help his partner Stamets, get through this, right? That's the way I interpreted it. Ultimately,
0: whichever of us is more accurate. Mm -hmm. The end result is the same. It is the stamets of it all being told you are the one who is unconscious right now. You are the one who needs to wake up. Mm -hmm. And it becomes again, the Alice in Wonderland of it all, the magic of simply like, if I can just bring my consciousness back to myself, then I can be awake. And in his ability to do that, Both he and the mirror Stamets both wake up. They have the moment where the mirror Stamets is, who is clearly infected by whatever his experiment was, yelling at the main Stamets, you've got to come back because we have to get out of here because if we don't, we will die. And then when he wakes up on his ship, he wakes up and says he did it. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a moment where he's like, he did it, whatever had to happen, he was able to do it and stamets waking up as well. And their awareness of each other is going to be an element that I'm sure is going to play out in the next few episodes. I will be honest. Mm -hmm. I happily don't remember a lot of what comes (laughs) next. I remember a few glimpses. I remember major plot points, but the details of some of this are, are turning out to be new for me. So lastly. I want to get your thoughts very quickly about the one element that was completely devoid of any reference in the Wikipedia description, (laughs) poor Volk, (laughs) Volk, Tyler, (laughs) the ultimate resolution to his story. What do you think about, first of all, what did you think about what they did with Laurel in, with, uh, Saru coming and arguing with her. You've got to do something here. And what did you think about the conclusion of the Vogue storyline? I,
1: overall, I really did like this. There were elements of, um, the debate between Lorel and Saru about you need to help him, whatever he is, Klingon human, whatever he is, he's in incredible agony. You gotta help him. And I love that Lorel, typical Klingon. This is like the Klingons that we know. It's like, well, he sacrificed himself for the Klingon cause. If he's suffering, it's that's that's fine. He's a warrior. So I liked her response. The one part that felt a little like would Saru actually do that was when he when he transported Tyler into the cell with her. But they set it up in a really good way because Tyler was becoming so out of control they couldn't safely hold him in the yeah. the uh, medical bay anymore. They had to put him somewhere where they could keep him from hurting people. So it kind of, kind of makes sense. Why Saru is like, Hey, let's put him in the cell with Laurel. Cause maybe it will snap her out of it. Maybe she'll be willing to finally help. Yeah. I did love how he was. It, it's fun to see Saru take that captain's role yeah. and do a really good job at it. He's re- he's actually a very good leader and the way he manipulated that whole sequence of events to try to get her to help. And it worked. I, I liked And then the f- the flip side of it is what happens to Tyler it's basically the two sides, the human side and the Klingon side are warring with each other. And and one has to go, one has to be sacrificed to try to save him, the being, whatever that ends up being the one part of this, I didn't like, and this kind of taps back into what I've said before about the Klingon's portrayal in all of the series. There's so much makeup on these people. There's no subtlety to the performance and there isn't there is not a really good, you can't really read what they're thinking as well as somebody without all that makeup. So when Laurel is doing the whole thing in the medical bay, trying to save him, they're implying at the end, when she drops to her knees and she does her cling on yell, she's mourning because she knows she just killed Volk. Yeah, And Tyler is the one that's going to be left. And so you can, she's mourning, but it it was so muddy and messy and it was the subtlety wasn't there. So it was really hard to tell what was actually happening in that scene. I only know this because I know what happens. (laughs) So it's like rewatching it. I was like, oh wow, that was really kind of like not clear what just happened in that scene at all. And they, with just some more different editing, different directing, different, slightly different acting. They could have portrayed it in a way that was a little clearer as to what was going, that she was having to make a decision as to one of them's gonna go, one of them's gonna live. And then when she drops to her knees, it would have been a little more dramatic of like, you could maybe have felt a little bit of her loss, but none of that came through to me. It was just, it was all this kind of like, oh, this is stuff that's happening in front of me. It's like, there was not a, a deep core of emotion to what was, what was going on. I feel like you
0: and I saw the same thing and the way I interpreted it was. It was kind of a Klingon whimper as opposed to a Klingon yell. It was, it felt like it was lacking. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, um, without the actress being able to convey through subtle facial features. Um, and this goes back to like reasons why maybe the next generation level of prosthetic for a Klingon is a better version because Mm -hmm. you get the actor's facial responses. You know, so much of storytelling on television and movie is body language. And here you're left with those moments. They're they're expecting you to pick up on flashes of imagery around Vogue and flashes of showing what is supposed to be a medical readout of a brain with bad white lights on the brain. And then the white (laughs) lights are disappearing and we're supposed to know that means that the Klingon inside has died. And what really sends that message of the Klingon side has died is that she does the Klingon death yell where, and we've seen this going the first time you see this is next generation. Worf does this with a couple of other Klingons after they have a Klingon die in the medical bay and they pry the eyes open. And then the Klingons look to the ceiling and scream. And they say, that's how we notify the afterlife that a warrior is coming. Well, here's like, that's what's happening here. But it feels like a whimper because it feels like you're watching, watching, watching. Oh, he died. As opposed this is, to you're
1: watching, watching, watching with yes. understanding throughout that he's dying. If this had been done on next generation or any other star Trek show, this would have probably been the a plot of an episode yeah because it would have gone into his head and you'd have the actor tyler playing the actor volk and the two of them wrestling arguing with each other fighting yeah. wrestling with each other and having dialogue and like you can see it's one id fighting another id and it's like they're kind of fighting each other and who's gonna win and then it's like her on the outside trying to save them and then one of them on the inside disappears and then we as a viewer know wow this has been a major struggle yeah. He'd, Tyler just went out. She drops her knees and screams. It's like, it would have been an episode to itself or an a plot of another episode, but I they seem to have shortchanged yeah. this entire plot because they wanted to fast forward it just yeah. to get it done. It and felt it, like it was
0: it, getting it done. It felt like it was getting yeah. it out of the way. And to me, this goes back to something we talked about before, how much of what Brian Fuller envisioned originally, what the story arc would be how Mm -hmm. much of it was held on to, how much of it was discarded and how much it was shifted too late in making episodes, because this feels like the I actually, at this point in this episode, forgot that the Klingon war was now over. Like they end the Klingon War so quickly in the episode where they do the final battle with all the warping, and then they go to the alternate universe that you don't even have time to digest that while they're in this alternate universe. That war is done. And I found myself like, oh yeah, the war is over. The Klingon's lost. I I like that escaped me. And I think there are two ways. You could go with the episode that you just described, which I think would have been a lot of fun and very next generation. The other thing that next generation also might have done would have been have more dialogue amongst doctors and people in the medical yes. bay. Yes. To have Laurel doing stuff yes. and have yep. her say, like, this is originally Vogue. Vogue must survive. And having everybody in the room debate, like, but he looks like Tyler. And she's like, I know what I made. I made this out of Vogue. Vogue should live. And then have her start doing the thing and have her, to her chagrin, discover, uh oh. Volk can't live. What I'm doing to remove Tyler is going to kill him. The only thing I can do to save this body is to let Tyler be the survivor, right? That would have been conveyed through like, you're going to kill him. I don't want to kill him. It is more, it is worth this body living for Volk to die because at least then I know that what was Volk exists. Have her say something like that and have her say, and have her make some sort of statement about ultimately have her say, and I think this would be very compelling for this character to say, what I'm doing right now is not Klingon. Volk would hate me for this and have her then do it and yeah. save Tyler. That would have been a, an incredible turning point for her. And then for Tyler coming out of it, because Tyler, and I think the, the acting by Latif in this episode is terrific when yes, he it goes in and out of Klingon. And is quoting Khalas and then comes back in as just
1: like, "Sir, you got to help me, please." Like, well, the, and then goes back to cursing him in Klingon. I thought this, it was fantastic. This is exactly my one big complaint about this entire show for the entire run of this show: is they tend to fast forward a lot of plot points, yeah. and a lot of and a lot of character relationships in a way that shortchanges them, and then they still expect the payoff of that. To have played out, yeah, and so by the end of the series, we end up in a place where they're being so sentimental about different relationships and different characters. And it's like we barely know that character because you've shortchanged them the entire series, and now you're yeah. expecting me to love them as much as I love Burnham. It's like what is what is going on here? There's a lot of shortchanging that goes on. I think, this show.
0: yeah, I agree, and I think that that's that's a symptom of, I mean, 24 episodes per season, yeah, too many. Sometimes 12 is too few, and if- I think there's, there's a benefit to other models of production, like in the UK, it's not unusual for one season to be six episodes, another season to be eight, another to be two. It's, you don't have to tell the story in the way that makes the most sense and what you described. And we are, I'm not joking listeners, literally years from talking about this, but what you just said is one of my main complaints about Picard. Mm Mm-hmm. The second season of Picard for me had lots of, well, you know, we're in love now. And I'm like, what, what, there were moments of just like, (laughs) what are they like hand waving and, and why are characters making leaps? And it's all born out of, well, we were doing this in 10 episodes. We don't have, we don't have time. And in that case, it's a weakness. It's like trying to pass a book report by reading the cliff's notes.
1: Like if
0: you want to read Moby Dick, read Moby Dick. Yeah. don't read the notes and think you've read Moby Dick. Yeah. So that's that's a complaint here. Um, so listeners, viewers, what did you think? Do you agree with Matt and me that there was a little bit too much hand waviness over some of these elements like Laurel, the end of Volk, which ends in kind of a strange whimper as opposed to a Klingon yell? Let us know in the comments and don't forget Next time we're going to be talking about what's past is prologue. Let us know in the comments. What do you think that episode is going to be about? Once again, wrong answers only before we sign off, Matt, what do you have coming up on your main channel? that you want to let the listeners know
1: about, uh, by the time this is out, I have a episode about small modular nuclear fission reactors. The future of nuclear is most likely going to be very small nuclear power plants that are quick, cheap, and easy to implement. It's it's a really interesting topic and a very interesting debate that has to happen around how we get clean energy out as quickly as we can. So uh, definitely check that one out
0: as for me, please drop by my website, seanferrell.com, or you can go to your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and noble, anywhere you pick up your books, including the public library, you should be able to find my books. Don't forget the sinister secrets of singe, which has been out for less than a month now is available on bookstores now for the young readers or just the readers who just enjoy adventure. If you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing us on apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was you went to listen or view this, go back there and subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. And if you'd like to more directly support us, you can go to trek in click the, become a supporter button. It allows you to throw some coins at our heads. We appreciate the welts. And doing so will automatically make you an ensign, which means you will get our spin off show out of time, in which we talk about anything other than what normally happens within the confines of this program. So we talk about other sci fi, horror, fantasy, movies, books, comics, you name it. All of that really helps support the show. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you next time.